Hello, and welcome to the second issue, the second coming of the Mental Health Avengers. This is Age of Access. I am Anthony Sitko from Capes on the Couch, and I am joined by my co-host of Capes on the Couch, uh, the first time joining us in this uh, this series, Dr. Issues. Hi. Is everyone there? Yeah, I'm Dr. Issues. I... Uh... I am a board-certified psychiatrist. I have been doing this for a long time, and for whatever reason, they keep kicking me up into these progressive uh, levels of our system because I'm supposed to be doing good for people, I guess. You are doing, <laughs> you're doing very good for people. Don't, don't let him tell you otherwise. And uh, so then we've got Guardians MH uh, joining us. You guys introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Dr. Goku. I'm a resident in psychology in some a small little town in Canada. And I am Joe. Um, I'm one of the team members over at Guardians MH, and I am a crisis counselor with Crisis Text Line and uh, an advocate for mental health. And last, we've got Hannah from Popcorn Psychology. Hi. Yes, I am a marriage and family therapist in the city of Chicago. I've been in the field for about five years. I'm currently um, in private practice. Excellent. Welcome. So, uh, so thank you, uh, everybody, for coming together and once again answering the, the clarion call of the Mental Health Avengers. Uh, unfortunately, last time, for those of you who caught our last episode, we had a few more folks, unfortunately, due to uh, the bug being this time of year and just uh, scheduling things. Uh, our friends over at Pop Psych 101, as well as Freudian Sips, could not join us for this. So this is going to be a little bit of an abbreviated episode. Uh, I mentioned before we got rolling that this is going to be the infinity war uh, of the Mental Health Avengers in that we're only dealing with about half of our usual uh, folks. Uh, mm-hmm. The other half have been unfortunately snapped. Um, but much... Uh, <laughs> You know, we will find a way to bring everyone back with the infinity gauntlet of mental health uh, for the next go round. And uh, thankfully, it won't cost me an arm. <laughs> All right. Um, so the, the topic this go round is access. So we're calling this age of access, as it were. And I know we discussed briefly during our last go round and, and in the thread talking about trying to come up with topics, we found that I think before we can even really get into some of the rest of the discussions around mental health, we have to discuss access first because what kind of psychiatrist or what kind of therapist you have, what kind of mental health professional you're seeing, what kind of of help you're receiving, all of that hinges upon your ability to get the help in the first place. And if you can't properly access the correct resources that you need, everything else is moot. And so I think discussing access is uh, definitely a very important thing. And so I know I'll talk first and then obviously we'll open up the floor, but, uh, and I've spoken about this on, on our show on Capes on the Couch as well. I was, and still am looking for a mental health professional. I'm looking for a therapist. I have contacted a few that I found online. And unfortunately, uh, my problem with access is not due to insurance or desire or even availability. It's really just no one's getting back to me. I've contacted at least three therapists, all of whom have posted online in some fashion or other that they are accepting new clients. And yet, no one has, has emailed me back. No one has called me back. And I guess I'm, I'm grateful in the sense that I'm still, op, I'm still opting to do this and I'm still continuing to search, but it is very discouraging. And I would 
presume, and I'm going to throw this out there, I guess it's just a, um, a first question to the, the professionals here. What does that, what kind of impact does that rejection, and I'll put it like that, have on someone who is in a more desperate mindset, someone who doesn't have, who is not in, in the correct headspace to have the resiliency to say, okay, it's not me they're rejecting, it's just, you know, they're not available or whatever, that someone in a, in a desperate mindset could, partic- uh, could potentially view that as a personal rejection. What does that um, what, what does that, you know, what does that mean? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, being in private practice, uh, we're always almost looking for new clients when we do have spots open. Unfortunately, the spots are very limited or even with most of the psychologists in town, everyone is fully booked months in advance. So a lot of people have that, feeling of uh, of feeling rejected when they can't get access because in private practice, we do take certain insurances that does help offset some of the cost. And that's an issue we can get into all by itself, but in the public sector, it's even more difficult to go see someone just because of the, the resources are so limited and they're just really taking the most severe cases. So a lot of people get really discouraged, certainly for someone that suffers from severe depression, that it took all of their energy just to make that one phone call and to be said, oh, they could see you in a month or they're not taking any new clients now. We can put you on a wait list. Uh, That hits them really hard. And to me as a therapist, it pains me to have to say that I have to put people on a wait list because I don't have any room. Yeah. As a person who used to be involved in private practice and now is a part of a hospital system, I definitely have experienced both sides of that. I'll say that my current struggle is the same as most patients and clients because it's our responsibility to get that person their next level of care. We're seeing the sickest of the sick at the time. And once we have them at a point where they're ready to go home or or ready to move forward, we are able to kind of provide shortcuts through outpatient clinics. But even then we point out our goal is to get the next appointment before they're one month supply of medication is finished. We want to make sure that they have some level of continuity and, and mm-hmm. we pull as many strings as we can and, and our direct contact with other providers and it still can be weeks at a time. So I definitely share that pain right now. So it's not just the patient or the client that has this problem. It's the, I'm going to, extrapolate this out to primary care as a whole, people that make those kinds of referrals from their own doctor's offices that are constantly trying to find access for people. So from that standpoint, at least if it's coming from another professional, then the person can recognize we're in this together. We're still going to try. We're still going to do whatever contacts we can, uh, but it's not going to be fixed overnight. 
And sometimes just having that type of feedback can, you know, help that person remain motivated for their own health and their own treatment. True. Um, so in, I think one of the things that is a, a rule or a law of some kind that if somebody is in, um, has been hospitalized that they have to have an appointment with an outpatient therapist, like before their discharge. I know. And I don't know if it's the same as it is is with you where it's like, essentially they have to at least attempt or make sure you have a phone number or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really, there's just not enough of us. There's not enough providers and not enough of us take all of the insurances, which, you know, is a whole other thing. Um, but like I get, I, so part of being at my private practice is that I have to have a psych today profile. Um, and so I get people asking me all the time and I'm currently like, I see 35 clients a week right now, which is a lot kind of actually. (laughs) Um, and I still get emails from people on Psych Today asking or or people, clients that I see asking me if I have any openings for a friend or do I know of, you know, do I know of places that take Medicaid for people who want to see, you know, uh, therapists who take Medicaid. So it is really, though for you, Anthony, that is really unfortunate because when I get, when I get emails from people, I at least respond back and say, hey, I'm really sorry, I don't have any openings. And then say, based on what you asked me about, and I usually send them like three or four other options with phone numbers. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned psych today because that's where I found the number of therapists. And one of them did get back to me and he said, "Um, you know, I do have some availability because I had said in the email that I'm looking for a therapist. And before I book a formal session, I wanted to just talk for like 10 minutes just to see if we'd be a good fit. And the one of them did get back to me and say, yeah, call me on this day, you know, or or email me your questions, whatever, and we'll discuss this beforehand. And I texted and I called and I emailed and they ghosted me. And as I said that, um, you know, from, from my perspective, and I'm not saying this in like a braggadocious sense, but I'm grateful that I have the resiliency to not take that personally and to not say that it wasn't about me, that they were busy or whatever, but that someone, as I said, in, in a different headspace may have taken that much more personally, someone in much more dire straits. And that's the part that concerns me is that, you know, I, I don't know how many of those people have reached out as, as uh, Dr. Goku said, that it took everything they had just to make that call and to then not hear anything back that that can really be uh, a major blow um, to the, to their psyche. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And I've experienced that um, personally. Uh, the first time I made a call to a therapist, I did it through a employee assistance program with the job that I had, which I was luckily lucky enough to have a job that had an EAP. And and when and like the the part of their job was to call with me so like we called and we called the first place and they didn't even answer and you couldn't leave a message and so she and so again luckily she we tried to call 
to call a couple more and then that's how I got my first therapist. But like, I also, that's a lot of access that I had and also I had insurance. Now my sister, one of my sisters, um, I would say has struggles with a more severe depression and it took, it took her six months because every time it happened, it set like it took her a month to get up the, I mean, cause it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot when, when you have to, when you call and if somebody's not nice or if they or tell you, you know, we don't have any openings or if they just straight up don't respond, like even just getting a no, we're full can set somebody back. Like it, it could take them up to a month to call someone. So part of, part of what I like about the practice that I'm at, that I'm lucky to be at is that we just keep hiring therapists. Like, if we, if everybody's booked, she just keeps hiring people like we That's have great. so that we almost always have some openings, but we have 20, gosh, I think there's 26 or 27 therapists at my, and we have a psychiatrist now, um, which is amazing. Uh, Cause a lot of private practices don't have the, mm-hmm. don't have the luck of having both therapists and a psychiatrist somewhere. So I feel like we're doing a good job at that. Um, and I used to work at a private practice when I worked at the place that me, Ben and Brittany all worked at together, we took Medicaid. Mm. And so that was really nice because, um, it really felt like we could help people who needed it. And also, cause we all had that experience too. Um, I think that that was really helpful, but I stopped working there and because I don't work there anymore, I no longer can do Medicaid. And so I, I, what I tell people when they have a hard time is I, I talk to them about um, asking for sliding fee scale and seeing if there is a, you know, I talk to them about if there's a counseling program at the, a college that's by you, like they should have a clinic that is free. Um, so sometimes I can offer those, but it is, it's really hard because it's, it's a really it's just, it's set up in a very unfair way for sure for, for everybody. Like I always feel bad when I have to turn someone down. Um, and I always try to be really like, I'm so glad you reached out. I try to be, but like, I mean, it still is really hard to say we just, I just don't have any more room. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Like, especially with that, it's great that your private practices has the ability to keep hiring more people to support, you know, the huge number of, person's coming in to receive, you know, to talk to somebody to receive help. I guess I'm, I'm trying to formulate a, a high burnout rate with the providers. If you were, didn't have the ability to bring more therapists on, do you think that's more of a, a thing that is seen today because there's such a high number of people seeking help and it seems like a lot of practices are just overwhelmed with clients that uh, burnout for the providers and long wait times for treatment is is more of a thing today than it was in the last five years. Um, well, I I can jump back in with that one. I my system is actively looking for psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, therapists, social workers, everything under the sun on an ongoing basis because although it's clear that everyone that works within our system is highly dedicated, I'm saying this firsthand too, 
we all feel the strain of mm. knowing that every person that comes through, this may have been the first time they're coming through. This may be the 50th oh. time that they're coming through. Since I'm working on more of the acute care side of things, we get the feedback that you're our last hope. In other words, they've gone through the channels that Anthony explained, you know, that he's gone through and they didn't hear back or they had someone previously and they no longer take their insurance or whatever it is. So now they're saying we didn't want to come through this way, but we have to. And so we're in the unique situation where there's something called Entala in the United States. And basically what that means is if you show up in an emergency room, you cannot be turned away for treatment regardless of the ability to pay. And so all of us know we are going to be seeing that person. We're going to be managing their situation, whatever needs to be done in that moment. But the idea that we have to do that nonstop. And then if they're in the hospital that we're continuing to do that. And we just had someone for example, leave for private practice or leave for a different area or whatever the case may be, we don't have someone lined up immediately to take that spot. So then it becomes a situation where we're literally just taking on the burden of another doctor or another, uh, another therapist all in the moment. It's not as if we say like, oh, well, you know, we can ration it out or whatever. We can't do that. And so from that standpoint, all we're doing now is, is almost like on a day-to-day triage, not just for the patients or the clients, but for ourselves. Okay, who's the one that's going to have like double, you know, double the load today? Who's the one that uh, needs, a, needs their own time down and, and an unexpected, you know, mental health day? Not, not even using that in the pejorative sense, just the idea we're all trying to ration this out. And I noticed... I had to be careful of this myself. Uh, I'm not saying this as a badge of honor. I'm saying this as as just the fact. I worked 39 of the previous 40 days uh, during the holiday break. I did that just to make sure that everybody else that needed time with their families was able to get it. And so from that standpoint, I realized, because I had never done that in my life before, and hopefully I won't have to do it again. um, Wow, uh, we're a a fragile group, you know? We, We... need to take care of ourselves just as much as any of our clients or patients do. So, so this access thing really does lead to, I think, an increase in burnout on both sides. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's accurate. And I think, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I think it's just, it's such a tricky, messy thing that shouldn't be that tricky or that messy, but just based on the way that the system is kind of set up. And also knowing that, and the other part of this too, is like when I worked at the practice where we took Medicaid before, um, it was also the difference of having a client who has, who is much closer to crisis than anyone else. And so then it's also, um, you also want to be careful and you don't want to take too many people that are on Medicaid because sometimes it can be really mm-hmm. intense. And, and mm-hmm. that also feels shitty too, because it's like, you know, I want to help. I want to be able to help as many people, but also people who are willing and really need it. Um, mm-hmm. But part of what we did, uh, part of the job that we all no longer do anymore was we helped connect people 
um, who had Medicaid to mental health professionals. And the amount of times that we were making phone calls to other therapists and psychiatrists and people were getting appointments, you know, like six months down the line. And half the time, literally more than half the time, I was saying to them, hey, well, here's the thing. If you we can't get you in to see a psych provider before your meds are up, go to the ER. Like, I know mm-hmm. you don't want to do that. And part of my, the whole reason why we had jobs was because we were supposed to help decrease the amount of times that people go to the ER mm-hmm. because they really need, um, you know, they don't need emergency care as much as they need the outpatient part when they get mm-hmm. out. And, and I ended up, I mean, I would say more than half the time I would end up saying, I'm so sorry. I've called every day for two weeks. I can't mm-hmm. get, I can't even talk to somebody, um, you know, go to the ER and I will continue to look. And so it's just, it's heartbreaking, I think. And also the idea that a psychiatrist would be booked out for six months. Like I can't imagine, you know, what that's like for them either. Yeah, that, that definitely sounds it just any job in general, uh, having your schedule blocked out for the next six months to me is just a giant, ugh, I, I don't want to think well, about that. Well, on, on one hand, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think within the field, we recognize this, but I'm also going to kind of look at this from a layperson's standpoint outside of mental health or outside even healthcare in general, if you had your own private business and someone said, hey, you have customers lined up for the next six months, most people would say, oh my goodness, business is booming. We're, we're doing fantastic. This is amazing. And, and don't get me wrong, it is a way to make a living. It's just that many times that's the only aspect that people come from. And so hearing that type of thing, it, on one hand, you almost say like, oh, well, then this person is in high demand. But at the same time, from the healthcare standpoint, we all know that means the opposite. It's more like, wow, this is the only show in town and we need to do everything we can. And therefore, we, we're, you know, we're really pushing our limits. So that's, that's something where I think there, there can be a bit of a gap there between public perception and, and you know, what we're actually experiencing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I guess then the, the next thing, and I know we mentioned it, referenced it a couple times, and I don't think we continue to have this conversation uh, without talking about it. It's the, it's the elephant in the room, and that is insurance. And the, the, the many, many problems that patients and clients experience due to insurance uh, in this country I'll I'll speak, you know, in the United States, and I know Dr. Goku had to step out momentarily uh, when he comes back. I want to get his take on the Canadian healthcare system, but just the the idea that a a healthcare insurance company is going to dictate how much care you can receive, uh, what kind of care you can receive, how much medication, and so on and so forth. Um, and the fact that those decisions are many times made by an insurance company and not the mental health professional and the provider itself, I think is, is troublesome. And so again, I'll throw it to the professionals in the room, um, especially, uh, you know, I know doc, you, you said uh, you've worked on both the ER side and the, and the, the private practice side. And I know, um, you know, uh, Hannah as well as, has worked uh, in a number of different uh, offices and such. 
how does insurance impact your ability to see clients? Hmm. And what, what problems does that create? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. All of them. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know that's, that's the big question. That oh, is, the, that is like uh, okay. the big well, one, but do we, yeah, you start. Go ahead. Okay. I, only, I'm only putting it that way because I don't know how to right, oh, right. write no, it no, down a, into no, it's, smaller. It's, no, it totally you know, makes it's sense, a, Anthony. No, no, it's a, it's a, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a great lead in. Um, you know what, then I'm going to, I'm going to attack the part that frustrates me the most on a daily basis because I know that this is the way insurance companies view me and my field. Um, So as the pill pushers and the, you know, Mm. general pharmaceutical mill that uh, psychiatrists are, uh, it is our job and obligation to make sure that we provide the cheapest possible care with the fewest amount of prescription medications that will not bankrupt uh, the insurance company. That is the most cold hearted way I could say that. Yep. Um, I recognize that that's uh, okay. There, there's some nuance there. I recognize it. What they want us to do in general is use medications that are well-studied that are considered first line treatments before we do anything that's too out there too experimental, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a, a basic level of protection for the patient when it comes to that. That's fine. However, I will say that the process of getting medications approved, even medications that are well-studied and heavily prescribed and used for obvious clinical reasons uh, can be quite arduous. In other words, if I, let's go with ideal world. Let's say I have a patient that I saw for a 30 minute med checkup, which by the way, most insurance companies will say is too long. Uh, Then I you know, prescribe a, uh, I'll just go generic antidepressant medication. I'm not even going to give a name. And the person goes to their pharmacy, they pick up or think they're picking up the medication. The pharmacist then says, you need prior authorization. In other words, I need to call the insurance company and get that medication approved. This is after the session, mind you, not the same time. So this is more time taken away from other patients that I have to verify that this is indeed the medication that I want that patient to get. And then I have to justify to the insurance company itself, either through another, and and I will say this, it can be another psychiatrist, another doctor. Sometimes it's a representative, not a doctor. But in any case, explain my reasoning as to why I'm giving that medication. Even though I just spent a half hour with that patient explaining why I would be giving that medication. So a person that's not even in the room, that does not know the situation, does not even know that patient, I have to justify justify myself to which can be not just emotionally frustrating, but it takes up extra time away from other patients. And that's the baseline that we are dealing with when it comes to insurance on the medication side. And that's that's just that one component. So you can imagine the frustration from a patient who now was told that they would be receiving something that may be a tool to help them. And they have to wait for my approval, which if it does not happen that day, will happen some other time that they don't know about and then eventually be able to start with medications that do take time to actually take an effect uh, well above and beyond anything that they originally signed up for. So we wonder why patients sometimes are not compliant with medication management. That's a big reason why, regardless of any poor bedside manner or, or overbooking or any of the other things that happen on a daily basis. So that's my rant about uh, my most 
frustrating part with the insurance system that I think is a big barrier to care. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, that definitely is very, very true. And it's so upsetting in terms of I was often on the other side calling. So I was one of the people who was calling you mm-hmm. and saying, hey, these, you know, I almost yeah. just swore, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I caught myself um, <laughs> that these people, um, you know, that I have to call and then I'm calling the insurance company and saying, hey, we need this medication. Like, I'm going to send them to the ER. So do you guys want to pay for a hospital stay? Because that's going to cost a lot more money than just mm-hmm. giving this person the 30 days worth of medication that they need. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that it, uh, it's just such a mess uh, in terms of insurance covering it, in terms of what you, because I think people also, the way that insurance works and the way that it essentially is, you know, the, has the final say in everything. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's not anything I can do about it. Mm-hmm. and. like every, I have, um, so I, we accepted HMO, which Mm -hmm. is, which means people can only pick from a certain provider, right? A certain set of providers. Their psychiatry department is, I had somebody who could could get an appointment in the end of February that Mm -hmm. called this week Mm -hmm. or with a psychiatrist that I know is Mm -hmm. not good and Mm -hmm. is, trash mm-hmm. and I wish they didn't work there. Of course mm-hmm. they have an opening mm-hmm. or take the name that one of the names that I gave them and they won't see them until May. Right. And it's like, and, and like you said, and so what I do when I talk to clients who are really ambivalent about taking medication, I say, well, here's the thing. And that's totally fine. Like you're totally allowed to make that decision. Mm-hmm. But if you're even thinking about it, it's going to take you a month to get an appointment. And it's going to take four to six weeks after that for anything to work if we're talking about an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're looking at not having any relief possibly for three and a half months. Mm-hmm. So if, and it's just, and people have no idea. Like when I say that to people, like, oh, it takes that long. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, it takes that long. And these are people who have insurance. These are right. people who have, you know, when I was fighting for people for Medicaid, they there's so many things that Medicaid won't do that that don't even doesn't even make sense on the bottom line. Like even if they were only looking at the money, it doesn't even make sense. Right. And it's infuriating. And and especially being somebody who's in the field, it uh, it's something that I can't like I could never go back to working a job like that mm-hmm. because it and it and that's a, and it feels like a really crappy thing to say because I have access and I have my own therapist and I have my own psychiatrist because Mm -hmm. I have health insurance. Mm -hmm. And so for me, but it's like the system is so broken in so many ways that it's, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, just sucked, sucked my soul out. I mean, it was awful. I, I hear you. And, and I could tell you that the way the system is set up, there's basically two extremes that, Um, I don't want to say they don't get fast-tracked. I want to say that you have the opportunity for more flexibility, ironically, and and it's not the mid-level insurance, you know, middle-class thing that we think about. It's either you have so much incredible money that you can go to a concierge practice that actually dotes things out months at a time, and therefore you can get the type of one-on-one treatment that you would 
you know, you would classically think of, you know, uh-huh. like you think Manhattan, you know, classic couch or whatever that we, we, we've said in the past, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. On the other hand, if you have absolutely, and, and, and this is not a way to cheat the system to everyone listening. That's not what I'm getting at. Um, <laughs> if you have absolutely nothing, I'm talking not even Medicare, Medicaid, you are, you know, you, you are totally indigent, have, have nothing to offer. You go to the emergency room, you're going to definitely be seen. Uh, you, if you do require hospitalization, you will definitely be hospitalized. It's the hospital's obligation then to connect you with outpatient treatment, regardless of ability to pay. And all of that will be under charity care. The odds that you are actually going to pay anything out, they may send you to collections, they may do other things to try and get that bill paid. But if you have no money, you can't, you know, squeeze blood from a stone. So mm-hmm. in that sense, you will get some sort of treatment. Is it the type that I would ideally want? No. But the fact that you have basically the extreme ends that will end up with more than likely the quicker access to care with something that at least resembles what we would think of as mental health is fascinating to me because everything else becomes an ultimate middleman arrangement. And the the current process for it takes such an incredible amount of, of Auxiliary, you know, auxiliary staff just to, to wade through. I mean, you guys don't need to know about this, but the, the types of billing codes that we have to use and justification in our documentation and, and, and oh, everything yeah. else on a regular basis, all before we even get to the idea of what are we actually doing for the patient right. creates the type of burden that adds hours to every day. So from that standpoint, that takes away from time that we could be seeing patients on a regular basis. So if you want to talk about another barrier to treatment, it's the fact that when you have that much paperwork getting in the way, it it limits what else we can do. You know, you can only do one thing at a time. So that's that's just a little extra spin on it, uh, and obviously it's it's clear that we can go about go on about this for hours. So I think I'll I'll stop there. Yeah, I was going to. It's a little th- different. I was going to throw it Canada. over to Goku. I wanted to get yeah, uh, his yeah. take on it. Yeah, because our healthcare system is a little bit different, um, but due to limitations in, in our healthcare system, uh, psychological or psychiatric services aren't always covered. So if you're in the hospital setting, it, it's covered. It, inpatient care at the hospital, everything's covered. You go in, you need treatment they will provide that treatment for you. When you get out of the hospital, there are two real options. So you can go outpatient care through community mental health that is completely paid for, but unfortunately the wait lists are rather long due to lack of funding or lack of staff. And then there is private practice that you fall into either paying out of pocket or having an insurance provider cover or offset some of the cost. And I know there's a lot of programs for a lot of different people. That's why I have a lot of varying um, different types of insurance providers that I do take. We take most of every single one, but they typically pay around 80%. So it's not too bad for a lot of the clients. And then there are certain providers like um, I know I do a lot of work with uh, workman's compensation, so WorkSafe, and they tend to cover a hundred percent if it's an injury that was was suffered on the job. Interesting, really. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. but that's in, injury on the job relating to psychological dif- difficulties. So uh, a lot of the people I see with WorkSafe are suffering from complex, complex post-traumatic stress due uh-huh. to the nature of the work that they worked in. So I had a, I have a nurse that's been, uh, that has complex post-traumatic stress that she's been working there for 19 years. I have correctional officers that have seen things that most people don't. And due to the nature of the work, the condition, uh, them being placed off work, their workman compensation does provide for their treatment. It's interesting to, but, get, to get that, that different take on it. I'm sorry, you, you were saying. Uh, unfortunately, most insurance providers don't cover a lot. And that's mm-hmm. the, the real stickling point. It covers about three sessions. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. That's just beginning. Like, that's like yeah. you say your name. Yeah. If you have a good program, some people offer quite a lot but it's based on how much they allot per year. And a lot of them are three, 400 bucks per year in psychological services. Wow. Yeah. That's a big thing down here. Like even with uh, my day job with our insurance, and it's great to see that a lot of these larger companies are incorporating mental health care into their insurance for their employees it's just so bare bones that mm-hmm. you barely get any support from it. Like uh, Dr. Goku was saying, three sessions, that's that's barely even starting any sort of development of a relationship between you and your doctor. I yeah, mean, you're, you're just nothing. starting to get comfortable. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, so it's it's great to see that a lot of these companies are making strides to incorporate it into the insurance and coverage, but it's just so bare bones. It, it, it almost does nothing you now to, to use it, which is and unfortunately a lot of the bigger covering insurance providers, like the work safes, they require so much paperwork mm-hmm. that most therapists don't want to take those clients because they exactly. don't have the time mm-hmm. or it's, the amount of work that is required for one client is just astronomical that you could be seeing other clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of, I think that's part of another part of things that I, that I don't think people quite understand in terms of uh, being somebody who accepts, who takes Medicaid here, they are, their paperwork is a nightmare. I mean, it's, and if the note isn't exactly right, you're not going to get reimbursed anyway. And also it takes like, you know, anywhere from three to six months. And that's only if you're paying attention, because a lot of times it just won't pay you at all. And you get maybe like, I don't know, like 40 bucks for a session, um, which, you know, is, is fine. But the idea that we can take all of the insurances, it just doesn't work that way because in order to maintain the kind of paperwork you have to maintain and the paper trail you have to maintain to accept Medicaid is uh, outrageous. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So 
it also limits, we're also limited because again, that same idea that we need to have time to actually see clients. So I can't spend half of my day making phone calls and getting prior authorizations for two more sessions. I mean, luckily at the job I have now, most of the people that I see, like I have to authorize every 10 sessions, Mm -hmm. but they're almost always authorized. Like I very rarely get any pushback, but it's still an extra thing I have to do for at least half of my clients. Right. I, I can say that there's been some improvement when it comes to, at least in my state, in New Jersey, the authorization for hospital stays. It used to be that the default was, we're not going to accept this unless you meet a certain threshold. Now it's, okay, we trust you as the clinicians making the decision that the person requires hospitalization, but on the back end, you better prove it. And if you don't, they will actually retroactively say that the entire hospital stay is not covered. So we have to be very careful to, uh, there's no other way to say this. We have to make sure that the person sounds ill on paper. <laughs> In other oh, words, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic though, because on a day-to-day basis, I could say, hey, I can see you're improving. But in my note, I have to indicate patient still appears to present some sort of danger to self due to depression and suicidality or, or whatever. Absolutely. And, and then, uh, because now I, I have to review a lot of other doctor's charts too, I see this as well. I thought it was just me, but it's not. Uh, where, where magically on the day of discharge, it's like, okay, everything's okay, you're good to go. And it, <laughs> yeah. gives, it gives a very strange narrative because it's basically six, 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 totally well. Like, no, no, no. That's not how any of That's this That's how happens. it works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. But unfortunately, insurance companies kind of tie our hands because if we don't, and, I, and I'm saying this with firsthand knowledge, if we don't word it that way, they won't cover the stay. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's fascinating that, that we have to, to jump through those types of hoops. Mm-hmm. One thing I've I've seen lately, because I've been hearing through the grapevines of other providers uh, working with uh, certain insurance companies, that the insurance companies are pushing for the therapist to clear the person go to go back to work, mm. and then their work saying, "Oh, you don't need to listen to your therapist or your doctor." they want to keep you off work longer than is required huh. Madness. just because they don't want to pay for it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, That's a which just irks me to, yeah. to my very oh. core. Right. Cause they finally got access. Yeah. And yes. then they're trying to say, you got enough after two months, go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't imagine only being able to see people for three sessions. Like I think, like while that's awful for the for the the client for sure and completely mm-hmm. unfair, I think I would lose my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would be like, I can't. It would feel so hopeless mm-hmm. in terms of me being able to 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 help people. And I mean, I would do it. Don't get me wrong, for mm-hmm. sure. But it mm-hmm. would be, I you know, being in that setting and being like, man, like this person probably could be seen twice a week, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just uh it it feels terrible and it's 
Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, and I know one of our one of the biggest healthcare uh, companies in the U.S. is uh, United Healthcare, mm-hmm. and they only allow and they have lots of rules about oh, their yeah. health, mental health oh, coverage. Yeah. And some people, I think it's like maybe twenty sessions in a year. Yep, people That's are good. allowed. Like that's almost every two weeks. Yeah. But even still, that's, that's at least far better than, than three sessions. Three. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, three is definitely, three is definitely, is definitely worse. Yeah. At least 20 sessions, you, you have a good chance at, you know, yeah, it is is. setting them up for success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The three session is basically when they have like the, the bare bones, the cheapest, yeah. Uh, level of insurance you could get, which yeah. is a lot of what people get uh, through sort of some of their work. They can get like five to six, depending on what the plan is. And some people can go to like being covered for almost the entire year. Mm-hmm. I could, I had one that I could see weekly for a year and her insurance paid was it 90 some percent of it. Okay, oh, wow. that's really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is. So it's depending on the company you work for, unfortunately. Yeah. So we've we've talked about, I guess we we just talked insurance. We talked about the uh, the availability of mental health professionals to see patients, you know, clients. What I guess what are some of the other major impediments to access that you've encountered uh, in your, in your professional experience? What are some of the, the problems that people have in getting the help? And as I said, at the top of the show, we're going to discuss solutions the next time. Hopefully we get the rest of the, the Avengers around so we can all tackle this problem together, but at the very least identifying what some of those other problems are aside from insurance and aside from, you know, mental health professionals just, I guess, being overworked or, or understaffed and not being, mm-hmm. not having the time to call everybody back. What are some of the other issues? Yeah. Uh, um, infrastructure as a whole. I mean, I'm going to try and represent people that aren't in the room. And what I mean by that is Anthony and I are located in a, one of the most densely populated parts of the United States. So it, it doesn't necessarily apply directly to us, but I know in a lot of middle America, I know in a lot of areas that are rural, it, it's purely there, there isn't even an infrastructure for mental health care. You, you have people that are literally just that one person for that area. Either they mm-hmm. could see you or they can't. And if they can't, then you go to the emergency room. And if you can't make it to the emergency room, then I'm cleaning this up. Then tough luck. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, just an example. I have a story of what one of my clients told me. She she worked in Nunavut, which is a very remote place in, in Canada. And she was part of the second largest village in Nunavut. And they would, on occasion, have a mental health nurse. No psychiatrist, no psychologist, no social worker, no no nothing. And if someone was in critical condition of either trying to commit suicide, they had nowhere to put them. Mm -hmm. So they took them to the local police station and put them in the drunk tank. Oh, boy. 
Oh, because that's therapeutic. Yeah. Let's that, lock them up. Yeah. Not because, not that they wanted to lock them up. It's because no, they no, had nowhere no, to put right, them. Right, right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because they don't have the, the proper the infrastructure. Well, the, the infrastructure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to, it's so funny that you, that you brought that up, um, Doc. It, it's, I was just, I was going to say, I was going to talk more about, because, you know, we're in Chicago. So, mm-hmm. like, even though we do definitely have, I definitely work with some people who, who location is a problem, but I would say thinking more of at home in Michigan where, you know, you, you have to drive at least maybe 40, 40 minutes to an hour to see somebody. If you even have the capability to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think the rural communities are the ones that are lacking in the in the biggest way in terms of mental health and and substance abuse treatment i think that those you know it's just so it's so few and far between that it's i can't imagine how hopeless that would feel well i have some clients that drive about an in between an hour to two hours to come see me Mm. and i'm in the largest city in my province Mm -hmm. wow Although we're not that big, we're 140 some thousand people, so we're yeah big-ish. But <laughs> some people drive a, an hour or so to come see me at my office because back where they live, they have one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or none. Right. 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 And that's the thing. We're talking, you know, person, not even exactly. system. <laughs> no, exactly. one person. Right. That's, that's rough. And again, I mean, and that's why I asked, I posed the question because I know everybody has different experiences. I mean, we live in a very suburban area. We're in New Jersey. We're right between New York and Philly. So there's, and and the section of New Jersey that we're in is very suburban, Um, you know, but I mean, I could go to parts of New Jersey where you would have to drive a considerable distance to find you know, people and <laughs> that's, well, that's putting it, you know, that's putting it politely. Um, but it, it boggles my mind, I guess. So is that suburban privilege? I don't know. Is, is that a thing? <laughs> well, um, I mean, there, there's a, a, a part to that, but um, to get back, what was, what was briefly touched on since we're going to ask like what other potential barriers there are, uh, I would say even within our own field, depending on where we're practicing or, or, or exposed to, is the substance component. Because um, I, I'm not going to speak for anyone else. I'll speak for, for my experience. Getting other healthcare providers to acknowledge uh, the fact that that is a huge part of maintaining a person's health, regardless of any other mental health condition, and just throwing everything towards whoever it is, be it a psychiatrist, therapist, psychologist, social worker, and say, here, you fix all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've, I remember this vividly in my, when I was doing outpatient, um, I had a gentleman that was literally shaking in front of me and I just had to call 911. I said, this is not the area for you. You do, you're, you do need the hospital. You're, yeah. you're going through withdrawal right now. And, and they said, well, well, whenever I, I told my doctor, he would, he would give me some, uh, I'm going to 
actually say a name of a medication. He gave, he gave me chlorodase epoxide or Librium in America. Um, and, and he said, don't worry, you'll be okay. And I'm like, uh, that's, <laughs> that's a little, yeah, yeah. Um, oh my so, God. so, so what I'm getting at here I'm so is, freaked out. I, oh, I'm sure you are. I'm so freaked um, out. Okay, go ahead. Well, Sorry. My, right. My point of this though, is to say that Yes, we can we can talk about the barriers in terms of lay people, but even within healthcare itself, sometimes you know our our own you know our own kin, our own people don't recognize what's going on often, and and yeah. I I do think that there is more of an onus on us to properly educate. I remember right after that happened, we actually did have a, a continuing medical education uh, mm-hmm. that I led on on alcohol withdrawal, just so that everybody got a better feel for what was really going on. But I, I do think that that's a part of it too, because I, I, I'll be honest, I can't remember exactly when the study came out, but the whole point was in terms of suicide, the, the last healthcare provider that the person saw usually was their primary care physician. Yep. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, that tells you right then and there, that's the person that has the greatest potential impact on navigating these waters. And, and absolutely, I yeah, know first, first line. Yeah. Yeah. And I know for a fact that many of them feel either overwhelmed or scared, or to be honest, there still is a stigma and they just don't want to be bothered. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. from that standpoint, I do think that's another barrier. Or a lot of them don't want to look at mental health because they're either uncomfortable or they're, it's not their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're, e- they're either going to overprescribe mm-hmm. and not refer mm-hmm. or underprescribe, mm-hmm. either refer or not refer at all. Yep. yep. Yeah. Uh, you were talking on stigma. One of the big things for me in my practice is, is still stigma, depending on the, the clientele that I work with. Uh, certainly for correctional officers, the stigma is huge still. Mm-hmm. Some people that should have come to see me 10 years ago mm-hmm. are just finally coming into my office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I would say even between uh, the amount of people who come in and do the intake and like, uh, we'll say something like I've been thinking about coming for like two or three years or, and it's just... The, yeah. the way that it's <laughs> just the way that it's set up and the idea that anyone in the field in terms of helping people be healthy to whatever capacity, the idea that that people don't want to look at someone's entire health is just obnoxious. And like when I, you know, I try to uh, when I talk to people about, um, you know, about all the different things they're on or like or like even. Uh, I was educating, you know, and I was, uh, so I have a, some people, a couple that I work with and um, both trying to manage their substance use. Now I'm not a substance use uh, therapist, but I certainly, you have to learn how to, how to work with people because mm-hmm. otherwise you just can't be in the field really. If you, mm-hmm. if you're going to push off everybody that struggles with the substance abuse issue, you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh and this is somebody who, again, is going to their primary care doctor. Primary care doctor is prescribing um, Xanax mm-hmm. and, uh, oh, God, I can't remember the other medication, mm-hmm. and knows that the client struggles with substance use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, who is not mm-hmm. a medical provider, mm-hmm. was the one who said, hey, 
cool side note, you keep mm -hmm. doing what you're doing, there's a chance that you might die. Mm -hmm. That combination of those two things mm -hmm. is not okay. I was right. like, if you're going to do withdrawal, you're going to need to go to detox. Right. Like there's, and, and they were, and the couple, they were stunned. They're like, mm -hmm. what do you mean? Nobody's ever said that before. I was like, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be saying that. Like I'm, right. you know, they're here for uh, right. help with their couple relationship. Right. But I'm, you know, doing, it's just, and the fact that other, I think it's just so upsetting to be in in a field where everybody doesn't feel that way. Like, are mm -hmm. you kidding me? Like, right. it's so, I know that we have a lot of work to do and I know that it's, you know, it can be hard or whatever, but it, you know, it can take me two seconds to send an email or to say, Hey, it sounds like you should go to the doctor or like whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and just the general access to education about mental health in and of itself is, is another big part of all of this that also I think is also linked to medical people having medical general medical education mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent points. Excellent points. Yeah. Um, so I think we've identified a, a good number of problems and uh, I mean, we could continue to go on here for, for hours and hours on end. Mm -hmm. um, but um, <laughs> so many stories. Exactly. Yeah. We, so I, many. Terrible. I'm sure. I'm sure the professionals here could could talk about stories uh, on on end, and that may be you know a separate uh, a separate episode. But I think we will 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 cap it here, and uh, no pun intended. I swear. And we will save <laughs> we will save the solutions for the the end game, so to speak, of this uh, when we get the rest of the mental health Avengers uh, back. And I will be sending you all. Um, the notification for the calendar invite so we can try and schedule that for the next go round. But uh, as always, this is an absolute uh, pleasure and delight uh, spending time uh, chatting with you all here. Um, so why don't we go around again and just remind everybody who you, who you are and where they can find you, you know, your shows, your podcasts, your communities, what have you. Um, we'll go, I guess, in reverse. Uh, so, so Hannah, why don't you start? Okay, so I'm Hannah. I do a podcast called Popcorn Psychology, where we have three different uh, therapists who talk about, uh, we take movies and talk about mental health um, and in terms of treatment, different things that we would do and just kind of try to help decrease mental health stigma. You can find us on any a podcast platform. We're at um, Facebook, Popcorn Psychology. We're on Instagram, at just with Popcorn Psychology. And then on Twitter, we're popcorn underscore psych. And then you can email us too with any questions or um, ideas for episodes at uh, popcornpsychology at gmail.com. And as always, it's, it's a pleasure talking with you. And mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we can do another uh, you know, crossover with, uh, with Capes and, and Popcorn Psych. Uh, I don't know what your calendar is for your upcoming 2020 schedule, but, um, you know, Doc and I are always available uh, to, to chat with you guys. It's always a great time. Uh, Joe and, and Dr. Goku, uh, what's about, tell us a little bit about Guardians MH. Uh, well, I'm Dr. Goku. Um, I'm the clinical director with Guardians MH. Uh, we should be starting our podcast back up for the uh, 2020 uh, year. We have um, a good uh, and interesting guest coming up uh, this week. Uh, the Gamer Doc is coming on. Yes. So she's a, a physician and uh, leaning into esports. So that's going to be interesting to, to speak with her. Um, we're going to PAX East uh, this year. So our first time at PAX East. 
Uh, if anyone's there, uh, come see us at our booth. And we have our Discord, our Twitter, um, where we have a whole bunch of people that help on peer support. We have some mental health professionals and resources there as well. Excellent. Joe? Well, Dr. Goku nailed it right there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think he's yeah. going to be closing the uh, the podcast from now on. You know, he did such a good job. But yeah, we're going to be kicking it off this Thursday night uh, with a live stream of it. So episode one of season three, you know, it's going to be kicking off. It's going to be exciting. And nice. you can yeah, find we, that on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, we just did season four. Uh, we just started off our season four. So uh, yeah. we are Capes on the Couch, Dr. Issues and I. And uh, we are found Capes on the Couch live is the website. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, at Capes on the Couch. You can email us, Capes on the Couch at gmail.com. We do have the Patreon uh, and a public page. And I think that's... Uh, you know, that's just about going to, going to wrap it up for us uh, on yeah. our end. So doc, I know doc has a Twitter account, which he's rarely, rarely on. Yeah, I'll admit social media is not exactly my biggest friend right now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, honestly, at this point, uh, I think Anthony said everything that needed to be said. Like I, like I said, I'm still in the field board certified psychiatrist um, in the state of New Jersey. It, it's amazing. I can't believe I'm saying, I actually have to say this out loud because I've been told anytime I actually give my title, I have to say it full medical director and chair of medical staff for, I'm not going to give my hospital, but basically it's a freestanding inpatient psychiatric hospital with 100 beds. So, uh, you know, anybody that needs help in the state of New Jersey, they know our name, they know where to find us. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to do it for, for this, uh, first part of our, our the second mental health avengers and when we uh, the next time we get together we will be discussing the solutions to uh, or at least the proposed solutions to the problems uh, of access so thank you to uh, guardians thank you to popcorn psych and uh, also make sure you check out our fellow mental health avengers as well at uh, freudian sips and pop psych 101 those are those are the other mental health avengers and hopefully they'll be able to join us next time so for everyone i'm anthony sitko thank you so much for listening and we will see you soon bye bye everyone bye bye y'all